0: Am I on? I think so. All right. Good to see everybody here. This is uh, my third time up here, and uh, I always, uh, it's always humbling and an honor to be here, uh, especially when you think of Pastor Paul laboring every week to give us a word. So um, thank you for your prayers as we open up God's word today. Today's verse is Philippians 3, 12 through 14. Now hear the word of the Lord. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. <laughs> Father in heaven, thank you so much for this day, uh, this Sabbath day you've given us of rest and worship to honor you and your Son. We pray that your Spirit would be present, uh, dwelling in us, Father, and illuminating our hearts and minds, uh, opening our hearts to your Word. May this, uh, the Word... Uh, be planted in our hearts firmly, and grow like a wonderful, beautiful olive tree that your psalmist talks about, Father. Thank you for all these things, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have had these verses pinned up on a corkboard in my office for several years, and this passage is one of those go-to sections of, of Scripture that I've looked to for inspiration and comfort during difficult times. It's a consolation to know that looking over my shoulder at past sins and failures would not help me run the race set before me. That brooding over them was actually a hindrance. Not that I did not regret my past transgressions, but that dwelling on them and brooding on them was, not going, was going to actually obstruct me from knowing Christ more fully. It's also uplifting and encouraging to trust that God has mercifully and gracefully called us upwards. That no matter what our circumstances may be, there's a trajectory, there's a meaning, there's a focus, a direction that God has laid out for believers. Though the road ahead is fraught with potholes and detours by God's grace, we press on toward growth, maturity, and sanctification. And based on His promises, we know there is an amazing rate, amazing end this race we call life. Now, on the flip side, these verses challenge us to exert maximum effort in the Christian life, to be single-focused, to be determined, to be active, to be intentional, and this is a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week enterprise. That's a lofty goal. My question to myself is, am I lengthening my stride in this race at all, or am I just on cruise control? Had I gotten to a point where things were good enough and I could take my foot off the pedal and just kind of coast for a bit, looking back at my justification justification and cruising into the kingdom. In this passage, the Apostle Paul exhorts us to think otherwise. These verses are both reassuring and yet a direct challenge to everyone to give more, serve more, and put others first continually. And in this process, we call sanctification to lay hold of more fully the person and work of Christ. So before we start to unpack these verses together, I'd I'd like to back up a little bit and briefly reflect on who is it that is speaking in Scripture. Now, I know we have a lot of really intelligent people in this church, and this may seem like Christianity 101 for most, but I find that when I open up Scripture and forget who is actually speaking, it doesn't penetrate. I'll read, and I forget who it is that is speaking to us through His Word. I fail to give scripture the weight and attention that it demands. The thrice holy God of all creation, the only source of goodness, truth, and beauty, the heavenly Father that has our lives in his hands. So, let's take a look at the briefly the basic attributes of God and we could spend a lot of time on this friends, but I'm just going to go over this briefly. First, God is omnipotent. Isaiah 43, 13. Even from eternity, I am He, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? God is the all-powerful creator and sustainer of the universe. He spoke the universe into being, ex nihilo, out of nothing. God is omnipresent. Jeremiah 23, 23, 24. Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord. God is everywhere all at once. Inconceivable. There is no place in the far-flung universe where God cannot and does not work. God is omniscient. Hebrews 4.13 And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God knows all and sees all from beginning to end. He has x-ray vision into our hearts. That's a scary thought. The Westminster Shorter Catechism states that God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, Holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That pretty much says everything. God is both transcendent, and yet he's personal. He knows us intimately. He preserves and sustains each one of us moment to moment. Right now, he is holding the world together in this moment. The psalmist says, my times are in thy hand. Francis Schaeffer comments, he's a personal God, in true history, that goes on forever. Jeremiah 1.5 states, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, this is the true and living God that speaks to us in His Word. So now that we've taken a very quick overview of, of God, let's look at God's chosen vessel to the apostle, to the Gentiles the Apostle Paul. Well, he only wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. He was a missionary, a trailblazer, a pastor, an evangelist, a theologian, and a teacher. He was a towering intellect, but not only that, he had a tender heart. He had a deep affection for believers, who took, and he took great joy in seeing God work in their hearts and their lives. Philippians 1.8 states, For as God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, I'm not going to pronounce the Greek word here because I'll butcher it, but the Greek word translated here as affection is the word for intestines, spleen, guts, our inner being. It connotes that deep feeling for someone that emanates from the pit of our stomachs. This describes the love that Paul had for the Philippians, a love that flowed from the depths of his being. Paul's heart was continually being enlarged with the compassion of Christ. So, keeping the greatness and majesty of God and the lofty example of the Apostle Paul, let's now look at the Epistle to the Philippians. This letter is personal. It's a personal thank-you note, friendship letter from Paul to the church at Philippi, which Paul and his colleagues had established in Acts It's recorded in Acts 16.10. The church at Philippi had a special place in Paul's heart. The Philippians had come to Paul's side with financial and moral support, and for this, he expresses his heartfelt gratitude. His circumstances are challenging, to say the least. He's in prison, chained to a praetorian guard day and night for two years. Awaiting his trial before Caesar, he, he doesn't know whether he will live or he'll die. This must have been frustrating since Paul is the ultimate double A personality, type A personality, always on the go, striving for the sake of the gospel and the cause of Christ. He's cut off from travel, freedom, family, friends, and fellowship. People are slandering him in town. He's the object of verbal attacks from fellow Christians. There are divisions in the church of Philippi that are threatening to tear up the church, so the situation is not conducive to joy for the Apostle Paul. Paul has every reason not to persevere, not to be joyful, but what's his response? Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. He's determined to rejoice no matter what the circumstances surrounding him are. His joy is constant. And he works at it. He strives for it. He perseveres through his difficult situation and commands the church at Philippi to follow his lead. The source of his joy is the Holy Spirit and his deepening knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So for context of these verses we're unpacking, let's look at Philippians 3, 8 through 12, where Paul makes his case about what his ultimate aim is. He has laser focus on his target. Jesus. Philippians 3 8 through twelve. Indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. That depends on faith. So Paul's aim is really clear here. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul knew Jesus, but not completely. He desired more intimate acquaintance with him to have reproduced in him the life of his Lord Jesus. Now Charles Spurgeon comments on this verse, Be sure of this, that the less you value your own righteousness, the more you will seek after true holiness. Now to our text. So Paul continues in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect. So here's our first point. And if we take away anything today, I'd like us to take this away with us. No one has arrived. No one has arrived at fully knowing Christ or has attained full Christ-likeness. Perfection and ultimate spiritual maturity lie out of his and our reach. Spiritual perfection, full knowledge of Christ is impossible because there is so much more that lies ahead of us to reach the goal of Christ's likeness, and Christ is infinite in His compassion. Whether we have just entered the race or been in the race for decades, Paul messaged, Paul's message is the same. We cannot slow down. Now, the Pharisees seemed to believe that perfection was possible by the external observance of the law, but they had a superficial understanding of God's true demands. As Jesus said, Matthew twenty-three, twenty-five to 26, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. So, could they or anyone who has ever lived say they had perfectly loved God every moment of their lives with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Can any of us say that? Anyone who claims spiritual perfection suffers a diluted, elevated view of their own performance, something that we as fallen creatures do quite naturally. So the misunderstanding, the lowering or dilution of God's moral standard, the law, and the elevation of one's own spiritual performance in one's own eyes results in the erroneous conclusion that we can't arrive at spiritual perfection. There's an unbridgeable chasm between fallen creature and God, and this narrows when we bring God's law down and we elevate ourselves. Proverbs 21.2 states, The ways of a man are right in his own eyes, but God weighs the hearts. Paul recognized his need of divine grace as God's supernatural enabling power To live for Christ. The longer the apostle ran the race, the lower was his view of himself, and the more exalted was his view of Christ. First Timothy one fifteen states: The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Well, this is the most convicting part of the passage. If the greatest Christian ever to walk the face of the earth has not arrived, what about us? The race is still on. We can't slow down. Finishing the race will require maximum effort and sanctification as we pursue holiness. This realization is critical for all of us as Christians. None of us have arrived at full Christ-likeness. So John Calvin puts it this way. Paul adds that he has not as yet arrived at this. At what? At the attainment of having entire fellowship in Christ's sufferings having a full taste of the power of His resurrection and knowing Him perfectly. He teaches, therefore, by His own example that we ought to make progress and that the knowledge of Christ is an attainment of such difficulty that even those who apply themselves to it do nevertheless not attain perfection in it so long as they live. So here's our second point. Press on. Verse 13, But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Well, now the Apostle Paul, and I I love this, he makes several athletic references in his epistles. He exhorts us to take an aggressive and energetic mindset toward the goal of Christ's likeness, to push ourselves to the limit spiritually, and there is no passivity here. Even though Paul will never arrive at full Christ's likeness, he presses on to make him make it his own, as Christ Jesus has made Paul his own. There's no looking back at his own justification and writing that all the way into the kingdom. Paul wants us to be all in for the Christian life. Antinomianism is refuted in these verses. Jesus is both Savior and Lord. Colossians 1.29 states, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. There's hard labor, there's toil, and exertion in the Christian life. In knowing Christ more and being sanctified, Paul, in his life, he leaves it all on the field. So let's look at Paul's first encounter with Jesus, who apprehended Paul on the road to Damascus. Jesus, he just shut Paul down. He blinded him. He subpoenaed him. Jesus aggressively wrestled Paul into the kingdom, overpowering him. Acts 9, 1 through 8. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? The Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, nothing else could explain Paul's transformation from a wicked persecutor of Christians to the greatest Christian that ever lived except for the supernatural call. And this event. Because Christ laid hold of Paul, Paul pressed on to lay hold of Christ. Notice the order. Christ lays hold of us before we can even seek to make him our own. God is always ahead of us, God is always the initiator. Therefore, we are called to press on. Well, how are we to press on? Let's look at Philippians 12, 2 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's grace enables us to press on as it is God who works in us in the very depths of our being. God is working in us both to will and to work. Whatever we do as believers, God is always working in us. Now, this is a serious enterprise, working out our own salvation with fear and trembling, building on what God has initiated and is actively carrying out in us. Our responsibility in this working out of our salvation is pressing forward, leaning into our sanctification. So what's God's purpose in all of this? Well, it glorifies Himself when he sees believers being sanctified, made more and more in his son's image. This pleases God. We press on through Bible study, through worship, through prayer, supplication, repentance, service, fellowship, evangelism, and the Lord's Supper, the means of grace. So point number three, straining forward. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Now Paul reconfirms that he has not laid hold of, apprehended, or made Christ completely his own. He reiterates and and reinforces what he just said, that he has not arrived. He repeats this point to drive it home. None of us have arrived or will arrive until we're called home. But one thing he does. Paul is not double-minded or scattered in his life aim. Paul is single-minded in his focus of attaining Christ-likeness. He has blinders on. His attention is narrowly focused on the goal of knowing Christ more intimately. He is, as they would say, locked in. He led his Christian life looking straight ahead. In fact, Paul was so dynamic and prolific and useful in his ministry because of this intense focus on Christ and Him crucified. Now, this doesn't mean that we're oblivious to things around us, but that there is one dominant vision and preoccupation that steers one's life. If you're running a race and you look behind you at the competitors or how far you've come, if you're distracted in any way, you'll trip, you'll be impeded, you will not win the race. So Paul, he doesn't focus on the past failures, sins or successes. Paul had voluminous past sins. He repented and was forgiven and God used him mightily. Once repented on and forgiven the sins are cast away as the Bible says as far as the east is from the west. Paul had to let go of the past to finish the race. Paul suffered He was persecuted. He was slandered. He had to let go of that as well. He had plenty of success in his evangelism and plenty of churches. He had to let go of that. He couldn't look back. He has his eye on the prize. Yet, he simultaneously saw himself as a chief of sinners. How does that work? Well, a healthy remembrance of his sins kept him humble and thankful for the grace of Christ the enablement to live the Christian life that God's grace provides. We come back to Spurgeon's comment and apply it here. Paul counted his own righteousness as rubbish and in so doing sought after true holiness. So, when we look back on the sins of our own lives, do we regret these transgressions? The people we've hurt with our words and our deeds, the offense to God, yep, but we are in the race, and we cannot dwell on these. We cannot let these remembrances stop us or paralyze us from moving forward and continuing to progress in the Christian life. The description of the Christian life straining forward implies stretching to the breaking point, reaching forward, exerting intense energy to reach the goal, stretching spiritual muscles. To the very limit, holding back nothing in our pursuit of Christ's likeness Now, I don't know about you, this doesn't describe my life. I can always do better. I can lengthen my stride. It's a challenge. We can all lengthen our stride, exert a greater energy by the grace of God, utilizing all of the means of grace that have been provided. Again, I quote Charles Spurgeon. Does Paul not give the picture of a runner? The man, as he speeds, throws himself forward, almost out of the perpendicular. His eye is on the goal already. His hand is far advanced of his feet. His whole body is moving, leaning forward. He runs as though he would project himself to the end of the journey before his legs could carry him there. That is how the Christian should be, always throwing himself forward after something more than he has reached, not satisfied with the rate at which he advances, his soul always going 20 times, Ahead of his flesh. Is that how we're running our race toward the prize of perfection in Christ? Finally, point number four the upward call. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I love this, love that verse. Again, Paul is intentionally, aggressively pressing forward, leaning into the persecution and the resistance actively pursuing the goal of Christ's likeness. And sanctification and holy living, this is not let go and let God, friends, where we're waiting for God to produce some kind of feeling in us and and, and stir us into action. That's not the point. Paul sees his life as a race. It's an athletic competition where he is earnestly following God's upward call in Christ. In 1 Corinthians, Paul exhorts his readers to run in such a way as to get the prize. 1 Corinthians 9.26 states, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. Paul is intentional in his running. His life has a straight trajectory upwards. The author of Hebrews encourages us to run the race that is set before us. The Christian life is intensely active, pressing on toward the goal of the upward call. So, what is the goal? Well, Pastor Stephen Lawson states, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. The goal is for us to know the person of Jesus Christ in a deeper and richer way, and in so doing, to become more like Christ. So, what could be greater than to intimately know the God-man, our Lord and Savior, What could be greater? This is an upward call. It's glorifying for us to become, it's it's glorifying to God, pardon me, it's glorifying to God for us to become like His Son. The prize we are reaching for is not in this world, it's in the world to come. The prize of attaining the goal is given at the end of the race. The upward call is when God calls us home. This is on the mind of Paul who is waiting his trial before Caesar. He doesn't know again whether to live or die. He's waiting and wanting the upward call, but he's willing to stay for the good of the church. This is the most glorious call that will ever come since Christ has removed the sting of death. The date is a promotion, a graduation to glory in Christ's presence. Now for our final point, the way up is the way down. Excuse me, I got that wrong. The way down is the way up. Let me repeat that. The way down is the way up. The upward call is really the result of our downward walk as we humble ourselves to serve others. A Christian friend of mine years ago said that Christians were part of an upside-down kingdom. Before I was a believer, I was like, what's this all about? What the world held dear, we were to relinquish. And what the world saw as foolish, namely faith in Christ, we were to submit to. Christ was the ultimate example of true humility. Philippians 2 5 through 8 states this Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. No one ever started out so high and descended so low as Christ did. His was the greatest display of humility. From the throne to Mount Calvary, he emptied himself by voluntarily relinquishing his God attributes, choosing not to exercise them in obedience to the Father. He came as a servant, descending into this world of sorrows. He was the ultimate man of sorrows. Enduring the humiliation and degradation of death on a cross, reserved in that culture only for the worst of criminals. All true saving faith exhibits true humility. Again, I quote Stephen Lawson. No one struts through the narrow gate. There are no peacocks in the kingdom of heaven, only sheep. We lower ourselves, coming to God with nothing in our hands. Every step in the Christian life is a step downward in humility that takes us into Christ-like humility. Humility means to think of or judge oneself with lowliness. It being Christ-like is our goal, our walk is the continual lowering of self to put others first. And in so doing, glorifying God through the process we call sanctification. Like the psalmist declares, we are firmly planted olive trees that will flourish in the house of God, bearing fruit. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in us that produces this type of humility to have the best interest in the spiritual well-being of others. Jesus puts it simply, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In the face of the world, the flesh, and the devil, may we continue to press on, press in, lean in, strive forward in our quest to become more like the God-man, Jesus the Christ, leaning on God's enabling grace to run the race set before us. And may the pull of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus draw us forward like an irresistible magnet, knowing that our Savior is standing at the finish line, waiting to receive us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this, uh, again, this time, this honor to uh, unpack your word together with our our fellow believers, Father. Uh, We just pray that uh, you would continue to uh, bless our efforts, that we would continue to strive, that we would continue to press on, that we would continue to lean into persecution and difficulties, Father, and know that there is truly an, an amazing prize at the end based on your promises, Father. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.